The word dramaturgy is unusual enough that my phone's autocorrect function changes it to dramaturgy. Even for theater makers, the concept is nebulous enough to prompt articles about it in major newspapers with headlines like, What the Bleep is a Dramaturg? In my dramaturgy classroom, I aim to demystify dramaturgy as an art form by recognizing that, as scholars and theater makers, we all already commit acts of dramaturgy regularly and enthusiastically. In my books, dramaturgy is an act of creation and more of a mindset than a set of rules, regulations, and duties. I'm Professor Molly Seremet, and it's such a thrill to welcome you back for season two of Writ in the Margins, a podcast that harnesses dramaturgical thinking as a performative act of creation. This podcast was conceptualized, researched, written, produced, and realized by the graduate students in the Shakespeare and Performance Program at Mary Baldwin University. For season two, we are bringing you 13 episodes that unpack, investigate, reimagine, and sometimes even push against five wildly different plays. El Muerto Dissimulado, or Presumed Dead, by Angela de Azevedo. The Antipodes, by Richard Broom. The Island Princess, by John Fletcher. Loa to the Divine Narcissus, by Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. And Life is a Dream, by Pedro Calderón de la Barca. These plays sit alongside Shakespeare in the universe of early modern drama, but each has its own unique terrain and orbit. And each episode offers a close look at key features of the landscape from a dramaturgical perspective. In their research, students have deployed tools of structural analysis, contextual synthesis, and creative intervention, and have intermingled their research with performed scenes, original music, and special features galore. Feel free to listen to the episodes in this season in any order. I hope you'll also go back and revisit season one as well. Do visit our website for show notes, transcripts, and bibliographic materials. We appreciate the support of Mary Baldwin University's Shakespeare and Performance Program in this endeavor. Now that's enough for me. On to your episode of Writ in the Margins. Cameron Taylor. I'm Andrew Knight, and this is Written the Margins, MBU Shakespeare and Performance's podcast taking a deep dive into early modern plays, specifically not by that jerk William Shakespeare. Don't you mean the Earl of Oxford? No, 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 no. We are not an anti stratfordian <laughs> podcast, we promise. We love you, Will. Yes, yes, we love you, Will. But today, we're actually not going to talk about our friend Bill Shakespeare. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a little play called The Witch of Edmonton. Uh, Halloween season is past, but it's never too late to discuss witchy business. We'll be taking a look at one of the most unique elements of this play, a hellhound named Tom. We'll talk a bit about familiars, Tom's role in the play, and we'll get a chance to talk to a surprise guest expert. So, Cameron, I know that you've been a fan of this play uh, longer than I have. What is it specifically that you like about it? Oh, I just love this weird little play. I really love weird plays. <laughs> so I was really drawn to it largely because of the witchy aspect and also for the fact that an animal is one of the lead characters. In fact, the dog is kind of what ties the entire story of witch together, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It's just not something you see all that often in early modern plays. Uh, dogs certainly showed up in plays like Midsummer or Two Gentlemen of Verona, but it's another thing to have an evil devil dog that talks and dances and plays the fiddle. 
a multi-talented good boy, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) And usually when a witch appears in an early modern work, she usually acts as a plot device rather than a full character. So I love the fact that we had a very interesting, complex witch role in the form of Mother Sawyer, the witch of Edmonton herself. In a lot of ways, the play actually sympathizes with her, which is kind of crazy for a play of this period. And also, it's got lots of hobby horses and ghosts. It's just a great time. Even devil dogs are good boys. Oh, absolutely. The best boys. Uh, So, how about you, Andrew? I mean, what was surprising for me the first time I read this was how uh, grounded it feels. The first time I read the play, I was expecting something a little closer to, like, Macbeth or The Witch, as Mm -hmm. far as, you know, how, how, how witchy it would feel. But it actually feels... Uh, like it's a story in the real world with just a single supernatural element. Uh, Sawyer feels very human and garners a lot of sympathy from the audience, I think. It's definitely not your typical witch play in that it absolutely does not feel like they were just trying to, you know, suck up to King James. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we have a chance to talk about this super weird play, and for anyone listening, please put on a production display so we can actually see it. Oh, yes, please, more Witch of Edmonton. I'm sure King James would have absolutely gotten a kick out of this play. <laughs> uh, so before we start speaking of that, uh, we'll talk about the play itself a little bit, just because it isn't one of the more well-known plays from the Renaissance period. Uh, The Witch of Edmonton was written in 1621 by three different writers, uh, Thomas Decker, John Ford, and William Rowley. Uh, Fittingly, this play with three playwrights has three plots. The main plot, which was mostly written by Thomas Decker, centers around a widow named Elizabeth Sawyer, who is ousted from society and branded as a witch. She swears revenge against the town of Edmonton and makes a deal with the devil to become a witch. In this case, the devil takes the form of a familiar, a black dog she names Tom. As a witch, Sawyer manages to make some farm animals sick and bewitches a woman to go mad and kill herself. Tom then abandons Sawyer when the town arrests and executes her. The two subplots are very different. In one, a young man named Frank ends up marrying two women, Winifred, a maid, and Susan, a yeoman's daughter. He attempts to run away with the pregnant Winifred, only for Susan to follow him. Tom appears and probably compels Frank to stab Susan and then cover up the murder. Uh, His crime is discovered by Susan's sister Catherine, and he is hanged. This plot was mostly written by John Ford. And the last plot is about a young man named Cuddy Banks, who wants to be a Morris dancer. Which is a a wonderful name. Cuddy Banks. Fantastic. Which is uh, a Morris dance is a type of English folk dance. And Cuddy ends up running into Tom, who tries to corrupt Cuddy to no avail because Cuddy is just so gosh darn naive and innocent. Uh, They clown around a bit, they play a prank or two, and then Cuddy banishes Tom from the play when he discovers how evil the dog is. William Rowley wrote most of this one. So obviously these three plots are pretty different from each other, and the only real unifying elements are Tom and the witchcraft. Uh, Speaking of witchcraft and familiars like Tom, Andrew, do you want to talk to us a little bit about witchcraft and familiars? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this play was written during a time when, like, all of Britain was talking about witches, thanks in part to King James and his obsession with witch hunting. Um, But witch hunting was already in place before he took the throne. Um, There are English laws against witchcraft that had been around since the mid-16th century, Um, And it's believed that around 50,000 people were executed for witchcraft in all of Europe between 1580 and 1630. Wow. Uh, The Witch of Edmonton was inspired by the real-life story of Elizabeth Sawyer uh, being executed, but the the plot of the play is completely fictional. Uh, The trial of Elizabeth Sawyer was heavily publicized at the time, and the character of Tom is based on the reports that Sawyer would converse with a devil dog of that same name, who visited her three times a week, sometimes appearing black and sometimes appearing white. Uh, The story of Tom matches the common belief in familiars, who were uh, demonic animal spirits who assisted witches. In Jacobean England, the view of magic was a little less 
Harry Potter and a little more satanic and evil. Um, cats are far more commonly associated with familiars. That's why you get the, the common imagery today of a witch with a black cat. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other accounts of demonic dogs as familiars, including one in 1645 with regard to the trial of Helen Clark for witchcraft. Uh, familiars are alluded to in Macbeth during the first scene when the, the witches say, uh, I come Grey Malkin, Paddock calls Anon. Um, Grey Malkin refers to cats and Paddock was a word for frogs or toads. Dogs are unique among other animals, though, in that they have a long history of demonic folklore separate from witchcraft. The concept of a hellhound can be traced back to the Greek and Norse mythologies, you know, if you think about, like, Cerberus. Um, And in early modern England, stories of ghostly uh, black dogs originated from almost every single English county, which is kind (laughs) of cool. Uh, These black dogs were sometimes said to be the spirits of humans, they were sometimes said to be the spirits of real dogs belonging to a master who had been wronged in some way. Uh, sometimes they were said to be servants of Satan, and sometimes they were said to be witches in disguise, like they were witches who had actually transformed into dogs. Um, there, there just seems to be something about black dogs in particular that captures the imagination and promotes this sort of fear and superstition. Um, because stories of these creatures were so widespread, stories like the plot of this play would certainly not seem outside of the realm of possibility. And I think it's important to keep that in mind, that many of people at the time would not necessarily have viewed this as fantasy in the same way that we do today. Mm -hmm. Definitely not. Evil was a real presence in Jacobean England. Um, So when we're talking about witch, obviously it divides itself into three different plots, with the dog acting as the one unifying element. So it would be pretty difficult to try and place this play in a narrative structure like the classic one by Aristotle, which mostly caters to plays with one uh, singular major plot line or a unity of action, as he would say. Which has three plot lines, which means Aristotle probably would have had a stroke if he read this play. Uh, And like Andrew said at the beginning, the play is very grounded and earthy, with all the plots kind of going on their own merry way. Uh, What really ends up forcing these plots together, however, is the dog. He appears in all three plots in different ways, as a Mephistopheles-esque tormentor for Sawyer, as a compulsion to violence for Frank, and as an impish prankster for our friend Cuddy Banks. Uh, Before we kind of talk about how Tom really shapes the narrative of this play, I think it really is interesting to note that there are only about two moments in the play where all three plots cross over into each other. There's a scene where Cuddy reveals to Sawyer he's in love with Catherine, Susan's sister, and he asks her to help him win Catherine's heart. There's also the Morris dancing scene where Cuddy and his friends perform for some citizens, and the dance depicts the driving out of a witch. The dance gets interrupted when a constable arrives to announce that Susan has been murdered. In both of these instances, Tom is on stage and performs an act of magic. So for me, this seems to suggest that if we view these three plots as individual threads, Tom's evil influence is what ends up creating knots that unite these three threads or stories. I've never really seen another early modern play do something like that. Yeah, it's it's definitely unique. Um, Tom is obviously the thing that holds the plots together. Uh, And I think each of these three stories could be plays on their own, but each of them need Tom for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, personally, I think that Tom's role in the Frank story is the most interesting interaction Tom has during the entire play. Uh, without Tom, the story of Frank is just, you know, a man who enters into a bigamous marriage and kills his wife, and I feel like it would be hard to garner, like, any kind of sympathy for a character like that. Oh, yeah. But instead, Tom gives a sense of moral ambiguity to the story, and we're left wondering if Frank deserves his punishment at the end or not, since, depending on a production's interpretation, the murder could be all Tom's fault and Mm. not Frank's. Um... That moment in the script feels very nonchalant <laughs> as far as how Tom influences Frank, but it has the potential to be the most difficult and the most interesting moment to stage in the whole play. 
In the Sawyer storyline, Tom's impact is obviously more direct. The way that Sawyer is introduced is interesting because she's very sympathetic until Tom arrives and tempts her. Like, like what happens to Frank later, Tom takes someone innocent, intervenes, and ends up ruining their life. This reflects the view at the time of how influential the devil really was. Of course, the differences between how Tom intervenes is part of what makes this play great. Oh, absolutely. Um, a researcher named uh, Meg F. Pearson even suggests that Tom's mobility is, is what makes him so interesting. How he, quote, wanders in and out of the plot, unquote, and acts in direct contrast to the, uh, quote, stasis of Edmonton, unquote. So obviously the entire narrative really revolves around this dog. He is the veritable maypole around which the threads of the plot dance. And this means that how you choose to stage Tom is going to affect your production in a very major way. Yeah, I've never had the opportunity to see a production of this show. Um, now that I've read it, I'm very curious about how the portrayal of Tom can influence the, an individual production. Unfortunately, I had never even heard of the play until a few <laughs> months ago, and I think that shows that it's... Uh, a really underproduced play nowadays. Very underproduced. Uh, I did a bit of research into production history and found a smattering of productions within the past few decades. Uh, one production I'm sure you'd be a fan of, Andrew, is one from Dalhousie University in 2008. Uh, for their production, they wanted to utilize uh, artificial animals like the hobby horse in the Morris Dance as an inspiration for Tom. Uh, so they placed the actress in black clothing and had her masked in this grinning, almost carved-looking half-mask that covered the top of her head, but left her nose and mouth exposed. The actor still utilized dog physicality. She rolled over, she wagged her tail, uh, but... She was masked for the entirety of the show. And now one of the most recent productions of which was with the RSC in 2014 with an actor named Jay Simpson playing the dog. Uh, the costumes were generally pretty period appropriate, but they definitely went in a very distinct direction with Tom. Basically, uh, Simpson was painted uh, black and gray from head to toe. He was completely naked except for a loincloth dance belt combo thing. He had a sprung wire tail, horns on his head, pointed ears, and some dog muzzle prosthetic on his face. And they clearly went for more the devil side than the dog because he looks absolutely terrifying. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. And I think the RSC one really took me by surprise because it's, it's really not what I picture when I, when I think of Tom. <laughs> uh, it, it's more devil than dog. And I mean, if you ask me, we see plenty of devils on stage and how many chances do we get to, to see an anthropomorphized dog on stage? So I, I feel like they may have done themselves a disservice there. I think so. Just more devil dogs in general, more please. Devil dogs. Yeah, can we get more emissaries of hell in the shape of cute animals? Playwrights, take note. Please. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of emissaries of hell and familiars, we have a special guest who is a bit of an expert on the subject. Uh, to get a better idea of how Tom may have originally been staged or how he could be staged, we'd like to introduce Mary Baldwin, Shakespeare and performance student Callie Banholzer, who we had the pleasure of interviewing for this episode. Have a listen. All right, so we've had a great time talking about Devil Dogs so far, but now we're going to bring in a bit of an expert in the field. Uh, Callie, if you would like to introduce yourself to our listeners, please. Hi, yeah, I'm Callie Banholzer. I'm an MFA student at the Shakespeare and Performance with Mary Baldwin. Um, yeah, and I did my thesis for my Emlet on devil dogs on the stage. Fantastic. And that was uh, Beware of Dog, an exploration of supernatural dogs on the early modern stage. 
Um, so with such a wonderful topic, we're going to get started and ask you just a couple questions about uh, devil dogs in early modern culture and early modern stagings. Uh, but first, Callie, what got you interested in the idea of studying devil dogs on stage like Tom in Witch of Edmonton? So it kind of started um, with our history class with Dr. Cole. Uh, before I came to Mary Baldwin, folklore was kind of my interest, and I thought I'd go into history and specifically folklore. Um, and I had done some papers on werewolves, actually. Um, yeah. That's and nice. That, that was more about uh, continental Europe because werewolves were not as much of a thing um, in the UK, England, um, which I talk about in my thesis. But um, that kind of segued in because I was wondering if there was any kind of connection between dogs, werewolves, the like phantom black dog, um, the Grim, I think a lot of people know from Harry Potter. Uh, yeah, and kind of that kind of connection through history class led to that. And then I just wanted to further explore it. Um, when I was looking through my history resources for class, I found the lost play, um, The Black Dog of Newgate. I didn't find the play, but I found the title. Uh, <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish that I found the play. So the idea that this like play about a black dog what that was lost it was just really intriguing so that kind of led me down that pathway awesome no a, a lost play wow <laughs> i'm surprised to hear that werewolves weren't really a thing in the uk i mean there's a whole song yeah. about werewolves in london I know. Werewolves oh my god <laughs> it's yeah no um it is interesting they talk about it and it's also in duchess of malfi as a lot of people know but the the english thought of it more as like a medical condition of melancholy and like craziness as opposed to something that could actually like transform someone's body. Cool. So how is Witch of Edmonton unique as, as far as how it depicts devil dogs on stage? Are there other plays that do something kind of similar or does it kind of stand alone? So um, it's hard to say necessarily because we don't know what happens in the Black Dog of Newgate. Um, Black Dog of Newgate was uh written before or at least published before um witch of edmonton but um the witch of edmonton is definitely unique in that we have evidence of it and it is very clearly a human playing a dog and not just playing a dog but having lines quite frequently there was a play the the golden age no silver age ha and it had Cerberus uh and it had a like a giant property with like the three heads um and that was kind of more the standard of like the big props being like the supernatural dog but uh this was kind of like a morphing into this like human dog which is really interesting um and especially because uh, and I talked about this in my thesis about whether the dog is like a familiar which you think at the beginning um but then it kind of shows signs of being something a little bit more powerful than that uh which i think is unique because even if you do see like familiars in plays um he kind of is running his own show he really is kind of the the ringmaster at the center of this yeah, um <laughs> like the whole plot he's in everybody's plot and he just sticks his paw in everywhere <laughs> idle paws of the devil's playthings right <laughs> uh so speaking of uh staging uh tom i know you talked about uh large props being used for characters like cerberus so you think that the early moderns staging tom would have used an actor do you think about like 
what kind of costume might have been employed or makeup or anything like that? Yeah, so in Henslow's diaries, we have evidence of uh, the Black Dog of Newgate having lambskins for the dog costume. And that is really interesting because one could imagine that a similar type of costume would be used for the Witch of Edmonton. Uh, Because there are lines like Bow Wow, I mean, definitely, it's got to be a human that's dressed as a dog. Um, There's a scholar who talked about how there are certain emotions that the like Tom exhibits that have to be seen. So it can't be just like a a blank mask. There has to be that kind of uh, subtle expression of emotions that um, a mask can't capture that only a human face can capture. And that honestly makes it more disturbing, I think. Andrew, you look like you have a comment about masks. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of masks, obviously, so I'd, I'd be interested in seeing it either way. Is is uh, uh, is there a certain way that you would stage Tom if you were putting on on this show? You know, that is a difficult question because I've thought of this before, um, and I almost think that I would try to stay away from ever directing this show just because I like have done so much research about it, and I feel like I'd try to be a perfectionist. Um, kind of I, think, I think there is something really unsettling about a human playing a dog and it very blatantly being human. My example would be, and I put this in the thesis as well, uh, last year the they had a live um, musical on TV of The Grinch. And I don't know if any of you were fortunate enough to see it. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> if you'll recall... Um, old max (laughs) was really kind of a lot to witness (laughs) and i was right in the throes of you know thesis writing and i was home for the holidays and like looked up and there was like a man dressed as a dog and i was like huh (laughs) yikes um and (laughs) and so i think that uh, a lot can be done with that and it kind of plays off especially with the early modern idea of like uh the animal and the human being so close to each other and not having the like knowledge of anatomy except like through animals because at the time it wasn't um, allowed legally to dissect human bodies so like people understood human bodies through animals so it just everything was very like close and the the line between human and animal was a lot thinner um and so that that creepiness of like oh this is a human playing an animal but it's also the devil (laughs) like that adds the extra layer um so yeah I think that's a long way to say I think that I would though I like masks I think I would stay away from it for this just because there are such lovely expressions and it's almost more unsettling that it does appear like a human and it's not that other but it is where something's kind of human but it's like just not the uncanny valley i believe it's like kind of like that but with dogs (laughs) (laughs) awesome well thanks so much for joining us Callie. i wish we could talk about this a lot more but we are out of time um thanks so much for joining us and for sharing your insight and talking about your work yeah thank you We want to again thank Callie Van Holzer for providing her expertise in this interview. It gave us a lot to think about in terms of how we would stage this good boy. Uh, So uh, like we mentioned earlier, how you choose to stage this dog effectively shapes your entire production.
Yeah, I mean, like I said before, uh, Tom's interaction with Frank is super open to interpretation, so the kind of Tom the play presents makes a huge difference. Um, like, I'm interested, like, in that moment, does he possess Frank, or does he just bump into him a little bit? Uh, a director can change the whole story in just this one moment. His appearance can also impact our view of Sawyer. Like, is she so angry and upset that she's willing to partner with someone who is visibly devilish and evil-looking, like in that RSE production? Or is Tom more innocent-looking and charming? Does, does the way he moves interest and enchant the audience, or is it very off-putting? I think that every decision around Tom changes the way that the play is received. Oh, yeah. And Tom, even more so, is this interesting bridge of the natural and the unnatural. In that way, he is kind of a microcosm of the entire play. And as you mentioned earlier, Edmonton is a very earthy, grounded place, and the stories are also quite grounded. And like uh, Pearson said earlier, that Edmonton's in a kind of stasis. It never changes. It never moves. And Tom, as this blend of the unnatural devil and the mundane dog, is the bridge or conduit through which the play makes its statement. Uh, he links the mundane of Edmonton to the otherworldliness of hell itself. Uh, Roberta Barker, who was the director of the Dalhousie production with the masked Tom, said that the world of which is, quote, alienating yet disturbingly recognizable. In that world, evil is produced by and productive of ordinary social interactions, and modern, as well as early modern subjectivities, are haunted by the lure of darkness, unquote. So depending on how you represent that, the audience may see Tom as tempting as Mother Sawyer does, or repulsive, or just utterly bizarre. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about how Tom might have been staged or the effect that Tom's staging would have on the narrative. Uh, but for some fun, I think... Uh, we should talk about how we would stage Tom if we yeah. somehow got to direct a production of Witch of Edmonton. And now I know Callie talked about uh, having a human actor portray Tom for sort of that uncanny valley feel. Uh, but for me, I think the answer is puppets, puppets, puppets. <laughs> uh, I think having Tom as a puppet that's a mix of maybe a wooden head and a flowing fabric body helps to establish his appearance as an otherworldly version of a mundane thing, a dog. He'd be able to, like, grow larger or smaller or more serpentine with a fabric body. I also think you could have the puppet operated by multiple cast members swapping between controlling the puppet's head, giving him many voices, etc. I think it would really encapsulate the idea that evil is everywhere and in everyone. And if the entire ensemble takes turns voicing Tom or embodying Tom, you could also have a primary actor for the puppet if you wanted, but that's my idea overall, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised to hear that I think masks are the way to go here. And what? I know that, yeah, I know that Callie said she was skeptical of it, but I think <laughs> depending on the type of mask you use, it can really be effective. Um, I, I do like the idea of puppetry, but if you wanted to do it without a, a puppeteer, a masked actor with experience in animal movement work or something like that, it could be really great. Uh, with a full mask, you'd get that eerie effect of words coming out without a mouth moving that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And you could still split the lines up among the cast if you wanted to. The drawback to that with that the dog would necessarily have to be especially large. Mm -hmm. But I think that, that that plays into the hellhound imagery. And I think it means that there's no risk of a puppeteer pulling attention away from the effect. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the RSC's Tom was definitely too devilish and not dog-like enough. So I would want like a dog mask specifically made, not, not a devil mask. 
Oh yeah, I agree with that. Sorry, Callie. I know we went kind of in the opposite direction. Uh, I'm surprised only one production we've seen so far, though, has really used either a mask or a puppet, though. It seems like both tools would be very useful, especially with how much the narrative shapes itself around this character, around Tom. Uh, given how prominent devil dogs and familiars were in the sort of witchy mythos of the time, uh, anchoring the entire play around such a creature really cements the idea of evil being present in seemingly everyday places like Edmonton or even a cute doggo. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But yeah. thank you so much for listening to this episode of Written the Margins. For more Witch of Edmonton, make sure to check out our other two episodes on this play from our brilliant classmates. And try the episodes on Common of Pleasures, House of Desires, and Fuente Abahuna. Yes, uh, thank you all for joining us and for taking the time to listen. Take care and uh, watch out for hellhounds. Thanks so much for listening to Written the Margins. On behalf of my awesome students, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. All opinions shared on this podcast belong to episode hosts and their special guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions of our places of work and study. Please check out our show website for more resources, including show notes and transcripts. Now don't be a drama turkey. Listen to another episode.